Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Main Man, an interesting story, a very entertaining story, a very long, wonderful adventure. Hello, and welcome to episode 51 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, the management rights company which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. The main man philosophy was to provide financial support that enabled their artists full creative freedom. The biggest positive influence on us here were, were really the Mark Boland records that were being made at the time. Those were, those were fine records. It was like he mated uh, Joni Mitchell and Chuck Berry. The management team pioneered outrageous and often controversial promotions and marketing techniques that soon became the benchmark for the decadence and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. Dave and Angie had in their bedroom a sort of a sunken bit, bit like a boxing ring, so you could have an audience sitting around the side and watch what was going on. So they were kind of just wild times, people floating in and out. Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients that included Lou Reed, Amanda Lear, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Danica Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop, Marianne Faithful, and David Bowie. So I just didn't know what, where I was going, but I just knew I was writing, and I had in my head that some idea that I wanted to put some kind of musical thing together. I didn't know what it was going to be. Fifty years ago, Bowie began the first leg of his UK tour, previewing tracks from the new Ziggy Stardust album. As part of the promotion for the tour, David was interviewed by melody makers Michael Watts and photographed by Barry Wenzel. This was the first time anyone had seen Bowie in his new Ziggy persona. Not only was his look markedly different from the previous year, leading up to the release of Hunky Dory, but what Bowie had to say also made headlines, declaring to Watts, I'm gay and always have been. Barry Wenzel's photograph of Bowie featured on the front cover of Melody Maker, introducing the world to Ziggy Stardust. Fifty years later, Barry is still surprised at how much attention that Melody Maker article continues to attract. Now living in Toronto, I caught up with Barry, who began by recalling his meeting with David in January of 1972. Well, I remember it was a bit like it is here in Toronto, a sort of coldish, um, darkish day, and we went into the main man office, and uh, I knew it was who let us in, and there's David sitting there uh, reading a book, uh, gets up smiling, and I went, boy, I mean, this is the drabest office, but the most, the most colourful character in it, you know, because uh, I didn't recognise him, and I didn't know him before, but he said hi there, we had a cup of tea, and then went through an interview, and I just took pictures as he sat there, and um, that was it, you know, I didn't think too much about it until it came out in the paper, and then... Uh, the next day I was shooting, I think, Tony Stratton-Smith and Charisma and Genesis or whatever. It was just another day, in a sense, but very bright one. <laughs> I mean, at that point, it was very unisex, I guess, the old... Because he did turn up at the Melody Maker office, uh, I think, a year before, in a dress. <laughs> and the purporter took him down to the old Red Lion, our local drinking place. But uh, we expected weird characters. It was rock and roll. and uh, But he was like a... It wasn't anything I'd seen before. It was like a space figure or some character out of a sci-fi novel, and uh, I thought that was really fabulous, you know. Very visual and great to take pictures of. Uh, so uh, thank you, David, for dressing up for us. <laughs> Over the next few months, it became evident to fans and journalists that David was inhabiting this new character. 
Did he make it obvious that this was all part of a new act to you? Uh, he seemed to be posing the whole time. The whole thing was a pose. I thought it was a put-on. Uh, but he was playing a character, a role, and um, that, that was um, was interesting. Who was this character? And uh, I was just uh, amazed, really. But it was the music, you know, the Hunky Dory album, great. I do remember, wasn't it, Peter Noon did a version about pretty things. <laughs> you pretty thing. <laughs> but... Um, you said you'd seen David around Soho a bit back in the day, so you were used to colourful characters. It's pretty anodyne around Soho these days. What was it like back when you were living and working there in the 60s and 70s? Well, the first job I had was probably around 1960 in um, a strange place in uh, Greek Street called Manhattan Displays, and the artist there was uh, later to be legendary, uh, Quentin Crisp, who was unknown at the time, who... Uh, had some hennaed uh, purplish hair and uh, wore leotards and bare feet. But he was he was an amazing character, you know. Uh, there were a lot of other characters. A lot of his friends used to drop by. The studio we had uh, where I worked was more like a soiree of a French left-bank ca- cafe. And we had artists, uh, strippers, artist models, uh, po- Covent Garden porters, Mrs Crisp's friends and... Uh, so I, I'd sort of seen, uh, and all around, every there were weird and strange characters you couldn't quite define, but I guess that was Soho in 1960. <laughs> it was a village in the middle of um, London, which um, was special. I mean, it was affordable, I guess. A lot of musicians lived there. All the film companies were there, recording studios... Uh, within walking distance of most everything, you know. There was such a lot going on there. You walk down the street and, um, oh, hey, man, how are you doing? Uh, you, oh, you know, you just knew people. But like, uh, and for me, it was like I uh, walked down the street and ran into Richie Blackmore. I said, oh, man, I love that picture uh, you took of... Uh, the, the, I went, oh, no, thanks, man, how you doing? And what, another day I was um, in Bourne and Hollingsworth and Ray Davis is in there buying cutlery with his mi- missus and going, oh, God. <laughs> and then uh, I was walking down Lower Water Street uh, one day and uh, this guy comes up screaming, here, Wenzel, Wenzel, what the fuck is all this going on here? And it's Jimmy Page and he's clutching a load of Alistair Crowley magazines or whatever, pointing out the back page of the Melody Maker where there's a little criticism about a paragraph of the Led Zeppelin uh, gig in Belfast I was at. He said, hey, you were there, it was great, wasn't it? I said, yeah, it was on the front page. I said, what's well, this? I said, well, it's just a, a knocking little article. Uh, a reader's didn't like it or something, or, but you have to understand, we can't, the paper can't be just saying great things. We have a reader's mailbag and everybody can say what they, they want and you've got to have a balance. Uh, I said, well, you know, don't talk to me. Get Peter Grant to speak to Ray Coleman. It's nothing to do with us. And by the way, how are you doing? He said, well, I just bought this um, house in Scotland, Alistair Crowley's house. But he said, nobody wants to come and stay there. I'm going, Jimmy, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's a colourful time, <laughs> especially after World War Two, which wasn't that colourful, you know. <laughs> That Soho that you described became the epicentre of the 50s and the 60s music scene. How did you get to be part of it? Well, last day at school, I think I was 15 or 16 or something, um, We in the science room, I think we had a free period before we left school, finally school's over forever, as Alice Cooper was there. But uh, some, some of the girls bought some 78 records and uh, they played Elvis Presley, Heartbreak Hotel, 
uh, Fats Domino, Ain't That a Shame, and Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis. And I went, wow, things ain't ever going to be the same after that. And hey, what, it, what are you going to do? And I went, well, something to do with that was... Um, was was the intent, you know, and for somehow I went to art school where I ran into all the other um, waifs and strays and odd characters who were dressed like Juliet Greco or Vincent Van Gogh, <laughs> because we didn't have a youth culture until we started making it up ourselves, you know, in fashion, dress, style, music, art and all of that, so it was homemade by local yobs, <laughs> basically. Uh, I ran into a lot of, you know, Pete Townsend, Clapton, Ron Wood, uh, John Lennon. A lot of people went to art school too. It was a default place where the uh, you didn't know what you were going to do. Oh, go to art school. And out of that came a lot of incredible stuff, you know. Um, uh, some of the people I used to go to at art school I'd run into, they were running advertising agencies and driving Rolls Royces later. <laughs> uh, all my other friends were working in factories. Uh, so um, it was like, a, take a chance, you know. But that it was perfect timing because, um, you know, we had Lonnie Donegan and all that, and uh, Cliff Richard, and when we heard uh, uh, the American music, which they weren't even listening to in the States, you know, and uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richard had got Muddy Water albums and nobody had heard of them, and it was like... Uh, thanks to Dobell's record shop in Charingcross Road, you could find... It was a search to find, wow, the music and um, to try to learn how to play because apart... No, nobody knew how to play a guitar if you could find one. It was only Burt Whedon's playing a day book which saved, saved, saved a lot of people because Mark Bowen said, Yeah, I've got this book, Playing a Day. Oh, I've learned how to do it. Said, yeah. <laughs> so it was uh, starting off from nothing and then becoming all of that, which is now, uh, as you know, history. Yeah. Hmm. In that early rock and roll scene with all those colourful characters, I guess it wasn't such an outrageous statement for you when David declared that he was gay. Well, there were a lot of gay managers and characters around. I guess Mr Crest was an obvious example, but, uh, and it was underground and against the law, I guess. Uh, but uh, I think Bowie's statement really um, sort of helped a lot of people, I guess. You know, Mick Watts... Uh, uh, was seemed a bit shocked, but I'm going, oh, no, he's a put on it. No, he's not. Uh, but it doesn't matter, you know. It's like, it's a person is a person. We didn't have prejudices about people, black, green, yellow, planet, whatever. We, we as a culture, a little culture together, was assuming and looking at all aspects of, hey, what do, what can you bring to the table? Oh, you've got a sit-up, you've got that. Oh, you. Yeah. it was sharing of... Everything we we were sort of there was no barriers or to anything. It was like freedom because we were youth and we had broken the bounds of that and we didn't know what we were going to do. But we weren't going to do that. You know, <laughs> go back to the uh, repressiveness. Uh, it's open mindedness and uh, the youth seemed to dig it, uh, whether the older folks did or not. Because remember, there's a couple of policemen standing outside. Uh, the gig and I came out and said, what do you think of Mark Bowden? Oh, it's OK, my daughter likes him, but oh, I'm not too sure about the music, you know. It was uh, <laughs> us against them, no. Um, but uh, that's what youth does, it rebels against uh, authority and uh, tries to find its own way and make a new 
world uh, rather than, uh, oh, can't have that, you know. <laughs> Everybody was different. There wasn't anybody like anybody else. That was that was the amazing thing. There was no band that was, oh, you sound like that. The Stones were different from the Beatles. The Kinks were different from the Mark Bowden. Was, uh, uh, everybody was different, and Bowie was certainly different. He brought in a new... Um, more of an Andy Warhol, uh, Lou Reedy uh, sort of feel to England. He brought America to England in a sense which we didn't know about the uh, the underground, you know, the early Patti Smith and Lenny Kay and Velvet Underground. Uh, it was like, what are they doing out there? This is bizarre. I mean, they all seem to be dressed up or in some other time thing. And all the Americans who came to London. Uh, they asked about, they were interested in the English scene, we were interested in the LA scene and the New York scene, so there was a lot of cross-pollination of um, ideas and um, influences. It was like, well, people couldn't understand it, maybe, but uh, it was too complex or too simple. Uh, I don't know, but it was different. I, I don't know how other people took it. To me, it was just David Bowie dressed in this fantastic outfit, and saying he's gay, well, so what, you know? Uh, what's, what's the problem? <laughs> so when you photographed David in DeFree's office, what was the process in those analogue days for getting your photos and Michael's article into Melody Maker that week? I think I walked back to my flat in Soho on Dean Street and um, I don't... If I'd been shooting other things, I'd wait and develop it all at once or in a couple of stages, so that took time. I know digital, it's instant now, but let dry them off, then print them, and then uh, take them around to Fleet Street to the Melody Maker office and drop in. But I may shoot, I think I only shot it, at some things I shoot just one roll of film, others, it was uh, depending on... Uh, depending on whatever, four or five uh, sort of roles. And I'd pick out maybe one or two pictures. Briefly, I didn't do contacts. I just went, oh, that looks interesting. That I... So it was, it was a spontaneous choice uh, of using the pictures. I don't know how I did that. But the picture either speak to you and say, oh, that works. Me, 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 me. Uh, or else it didn't. And that's how I did it. It was you didn't, no time to think or reflect or to ponder or scratch your head, you know. <laughs> Monday was uh, press day where all the pictures had to be in most gigs over the weekend, so I was working all weekend to get stuff into the Melody, prints into the Melody Maker on Monday before the train went off to Colchester where it got printed on Tuesday. It appeared on the uh, newsstands on Wednesday. We had a conference at midday planned the next week. So the, there was, we only looked back at the, the week's uh, what we'd done and go oh that's interesting I never had time to read it I don't think I read Mick's article because <laughs> I was onto something else but now looking back we were uh, incredibly busy you know there was so many so much to cover with so many exciting new bands or with individual styles how did you approach a subject when setting up a shoot I guess it's um, Zen and the Art of Photography. You can't think about it. It just happens. And, uh, like, the whole thing is to focus on the eyes. If if the eyes are sharp and you're looking into the eyes, you see that and if everything else can be out of focus. But if the eyes are not... If you haven't got the eyes and you can't do it... Uh, so it's like, hmm, what's the situation like? Do I need a lighting? I usually took a little flash, portable flash, bounce it off the ceiling or a little umbrella... And I guess the exposure, I never took an exposure reading. But somehow it all 
nearly always came out. So it was perchancey. And um, yeah, what's best lens to use? I think I used um, a 50 millimeter regular lens, which I really didn't use. Um, 28 was usually what I did. But it was like, no, okay, that's how it's going to be. And because the melody maker, front page or whatever, you knew, oh, they're going to do that or that. So you'd make allowances and try and get a picture which fitted any type that they put in so it didn't screw up your picture. <laughs> so there's a lot of things to think about, but I didn't think about that. It was, don't think, just do. And that was the same with live gigs. Um, when I did photograph Bowie at um, Earl's Court and... Uh, it was like the automatic pilot, you know. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Click, and this little click finger had a mind of its own. I didn't have to do anything; just let go, and be with that. And that's what that facility. Uh, a lot of musicians told me later, uh, like Bowie, uh, actually said, uh, "Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know how you did that, but thanks for that picture you did, all those pictures for the." Um, for the article of Mick Watts, it really made me, or Ziggy, uh, and thanks a million, you know. <laughs> so it was a nice compliment to hear back that uh, the actual artist likes what you do, you know. He was an animated character. It was, uh, what role is he playing now? Uh, what uh, movement is he going through? It was very, well, that Lindsay Kemp school of drama and uh, stage presentation. And that's what really the melody maker was 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 using. It was like, oh, it's got to be visual because before that they just used stock pictures of yeah, yeah, yeah. and we we were the first ones to actually cover a live gig with pictures and, and interviews with pictures. Uh, the enemy wasn't doing that or nobody else. Um, I was doing it because I wanted to, and it really helped the journalists when the, we went to see Eric Clapton or Jimi Hendrix or anybody to sit down, have a cup of tea, and. I wouldn't take pictures for the first 10 minutes, but you know, we'd have a chat and da-da-da, and then I'd gradually take out the camera, put some film in, point it at somewhere else and click and put it down again. So it was learning that uh, Don Pennybecker style of um, being a fly on the wall or, 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 or just calming things down and not, here, do this, do that, do that, I want this and that, which uh, was a style before. So I was very undirected. I tried to capture people in their best light because that was all the art of photography you know my heroes were Cartier Bresson, and Eugene Smith Dor Dorothy Lange and all of the great photographers so I was trying to make pictures and uh, it didn't really matter who was in there somehow to me because uh, they changed every day but um, you know some people did stand out David Bowie certainly stood out and uh, that um, Ziggy was a bit of a short-lived thing. Uh, I, I thought he based it on uh, Vince Taylor, who did Big Black Cadillac, uh, who started dressing up in black leather and all that. was famous in France, but uh, rose and fell and uh, became a baggage handler, I think, at the end of his life. But uh, a bit like Gilbert and George, I guess. Like He's an art piece in himself. That, that was uh, wonderful and styled and dressed by these great artists. He was wearing art and expressing it. That's, uh, what more can you do? <laughs> Brilliant. As old Keats said, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. I never looked at it that way, but looking back at those pictures 50 years ago, uh, which I'm putting in my book, I go, oh, that still works as a photograph. Oh, that's fantastic. It wasn't just, it didn't date. We had a lot of fun. It was experimental, and uh, the artists were learning how to play their instruments and come up with tunes. I was learning how to do photography, yeah. And 
it was um, a magic moment. I think um, you can't do that now, unfortunately, and there isn't. There doesn't seem to be any uh, equivalent to what we had. But if David hadn't have done that interview and dressed up like that, probably nothing would have happened. You know. Hmm. Another very famous series of shots of yours that were taken the following year in May in Paris when David and Angie and some of the Ziggy Entourage were returning from the Japanese tour. How did that session come about? Well, Eriza had the bright idea of us, as Main Man wasn't co- cooperating, um, to, get, to go to Paris, uh, Roy Hollingsworth and I from the Melody Maker, meet David Bowie and come back on the train with them on the boat. Sounds a great idea. Uh, they put us up in the Jurassic Hotel, which was pricey and still is probably. Uh, but he didn't turn up the day we got there, or the next day, or even I think the next day. And we were pretty skint. We'd spent all our money, and we finally took a chance on going to the Garden Nor. And as we got there, we saw this. Um, it's David Bowie. Oh, hey boys, hey, where you are? And uh, he just arrived a few days late. Uh, and Angie said, Ah, oh, well, David, we've missed the boat. And um, the next train was uh, connecting with a hovercraft. So he was a bit apprehensive about that until we explained it only flew a foot off the sea and it was quite safe. Anyway, we get on the train and um, realise we don't have any money. And uh, David says, Oh, don't worry. Uh, uh, you know, I'll fix that and he pays for us all the way back to London but as he was saying late as I mentioned earlier he said thanks for the article you did it really made made me uh, wow all of that and uh, I guess it was a nice payment back uh, but we had a great trip back to, to London and the hovercraft was a bit chancy but he did get on and it, it was, mm. so maybe that was the first time he'd flown <laughs> <laughs> A quick question for you about Angie. She was in the office for that first Ziggy session and was an important part of the team. How did you view her involvement in David's career? Well, if David was sort of androgynous, uh, uh, Angie was sort of that, but New Yorkish and a lot more uh, assertive, in a sense, because she was the one that seemed to be organising him, uh, organising all of us on the train to get back to uh, London from Paris. And, uh, like, oh, New York checks, they get stuff done, uh, but they can be trouble and uh, shut up. <laughs> but uh, funnily enough, um, in one of the pictures, I think there was a front page, oh, yeah, of him and Bowie and uh, Angie hugging each other in the station that was used on the front page and... Uh, a main man uh, said, oh, David and Angie would love a copy of that uh, picture. You know, after being banned for taking pictures, now they wanted a picture of them. <laughs> but I don't think they ever sent it in, and they, I think it ended up in... They got divorced later, so probably just as well, you know. <laughs> Photographer Barry Wenzel recalling some of his now legendary sessions with David Bowie during the early Ziggy Stardust period. And you can check out all of Barry's photographs from many of Rock's iconic figures at barrywenzel.com. And there are some great pieces of Main Man archive referencing the early Ziggy period that are available on the Main Man label website, part of an ever-growing collection of Main Man documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, a lot of them never seen before, that we're adding to the Main Man label website each week. That's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.